This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. So, seven days ago, I sat in the same seat and uh, now it feels like a lot longer than seven days. (laughs) Maybe it has something to do with what happened what I was involved in, in between. You're not the same person. And I'm not entering the same room. I've heard that one before. (laughs) 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 Maybe you didn't hear that exchange. During the... uh, We had a seven-day meditation retreat, as a shame. And, And I quoted Heraclitus saying, you know, you can't enter the same river twice. The river changes and you change. Um, in an interesting way, it's not the whole story. Um, because um, there's a way in which, as human beings, as we become invested in something, in some place, in some time, in some relationship, um, we have a feeling, a uh, disposition, a sense of connection that I would call belonging. There's, There's ways in which we feel like we belong. So after spending the bulk of the last seven days sitting in this room, I uh, have a feeling of belonging. Belonging to here, belonging to now. And where is not here and now? wherever we go. In some ways we could say a Zen center is its function is in search of and in celebration of here and now. Albeit a here that has no boundaries and a now that goes beyond time. Still, how can we in our human lives do other than search for it and celebrate it within the context that we find ourselves in? In our typical notion in in Buddhist practice and carried over into Zen practice, and it's one of um, leaving home. And at that time in India, when Shakyamuni started, um, it was quite literal. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And in, in Southeast Asia, 
it's still quite little. You leave home. And there's another side to it. It's like you leave home and you belong in the here and now. And that here and now is available wherever you are. I'm not sure if everybody is kind of slow on the uptake or just Zen students. About. <laughs> you know, I grew up always spent the whole seven days being here, trying to be now, and having glimpses of, oh, maybe this is boundless and beyond time. And of course, not so much that we would have that thought, because the thought's just a thought. But something more like the feeling, the sensibility. Yeah. And it's my notion that th this isn't the exclusive purview of Zen practice. If you think about it in our human lives, I mean, if you look across many religious traditions, especially in the West. In the winter, we find a reason for celebration. Christmas, Hanukkah, you know, the season of celebration. Celebrate light in the heart of winter. Discover within that its own version of here and now. And then in the spring, we celebrate birth. Another version of here and now. And in the summer, we open up to abundance. And everything is vibrant. And in the fall, we give thanks for the fruits of that abundance. Each place, each activity, each time of season, each time of life, discovering um, something very fundamental about our lives, about being alive, about being in harmony with all beings and the space and time we occupy. And I'd suggest to you that's what a Zen center is about. It's, it's about coming together in search and celebration of here and now. And of course, we get ourselves into trouble. We say, well, let's make a space and let's call it a zendo. Or a hall for awakening, a Buddha hall. And we say, that's here and now. And let's sit in that space. 
<laughs> we'll be here and now. There's a saying in Zen that it's wisdom comes searching for wisdom. It brought us in the door. There's something in our human existence that knows this. How could we not? We're part of the great stream of life. We've never been separate from it, despite what gets cooked up in our minds and opinions and our notions of us and them. I was sitting here this morning and there were two rows of Buddhas sitting serenely uh, with great dignity. And I was thinking, seven days of sitting will do that to you. You know, I'm not foolish enough to think that inside those heads <laughs> and the sensations in those bodies were, were, was just liquid, bejeweled uh, energy and life. <laughs> it's a little more complicated than that. Um, someone said to me recently, they said, um, it's a funny thing. I, uh, I went to a Zen retreat, a weekend retreat, and stayed for the whole thing, but after it was over, I decided, uh, this is not for me. I'm not going to do Zen. And then two days later, they find themselves back in the Zendo and have continued that practice for a long time, many, many years. You know, we sit in the Zen world, we sit to be present, to let something uh, settle. Rilke said, God is the gravity of being that draws down into being what we already are. the gravity of being. And in the Zen world, this is the challenge of Zazen. How do we facilitate that gravity rather than distract ourselves, struggle with it, try to control it, conceptualize it? And for almost all of us, Maybe there is no almost in it. Maybe it is all of us. But I'll stick with almost all of us, since that's my observation. Um, there is a struggle in it. You know, today, uh, a little bit after we uh, finish the talk and clean up in a true Zen fashion, um, we'll have a ceremony the Buddha's Enlightenment Ceremony. 
even the Zen people get into having a celebration in the dark of winter. Uh, but when you look at Shakyamuni's life, you know, the, the, uh, as, as we know it, you know, as, as it gets past dying in the lore, um, his father tried determinedly to shield him from harm, shield him from difficult, painful experiences. And what parent, when they're capable, doesn't do that for their children? And of course, he wasn't successful. And, and seeing that old age sickness and death as he did, Shakyamuni decided he would leave home. Um, he had a young wife. He just had a child born. And still, he made that decision. Usually, in the heroic tale, that decision is given a hue of the magnificence of his dedication. But I would say to you, anyone who's practiced a while, who's dedicated themselves to something that asks a lot of them, um, knows it's a complex affair. Someone said to me once, you know, his mother died at childbirth and his mother's sister raised him. And the way this story goes is that his mother's sister actually wanted to be the equivalent of the time a nun, but because she had to raise her sister's, her deceased sister's son, she couldn't. Someone said to me once, oh, you know, the reason Shakyamuni was so determined to have a spiritual life was because of his mother, who raised him. Maybe, maybe not. I think it's a beautiful thought to think of. It sort of makes a little bit more complicated, you know, the heroic journey uh, casts aside all complications in its beautiful simplicity. Yeah. So he decided to leave, and he left, not quite knowing what he was up for. And one of the things you learn about doing a seven-day shishin is you might think you know what you're up for, but after you've done a couple or several, you realize you don't quite know what you're up for. You have a sense. This is my spiritual quest. Huh? And he trained 
in a variety of traditions. Some intellectual, some physical yoga, some deep teachings on the nature of non-duality. And as the story goes, each of them, he was acknowledged in. Each of those traditions, but something in him um, didn't feel like it really got to the heart of the matter. And who hasn't felt that way? Who hasn't felt when they explored deeply what was going on for them that, hmm, have I got to the heart of the matter? In kind of a beautiful contradictory way, Zen relishes that sentiment. Keep exploring. Lifelong learning. Don't try to convince yourself you have all the answers. In Zen it's called great doubt. when we flip it on its head and we say, I'm certain, I'm certain. And then a little nagging voice inside of us says, really? (laughs) (laughs) Or we have this yearning, I want to be certain, I want to be certain, I can't rest until I'm certain. Then we have a corrosive doubt, you know. When we commit to learning, when you start a Zen center, who the heck knows what's going to happen? Probably all sorts of stuff is going to happen. Just the same way with our own lives. Just the same way when you start a seven-day sashim. Just the same way when you start an intimate relationship. Just the same way when you start you sit down and start to meditate. Who knows what's going to happen? This is the human condition. And if we demand certainty, if we want mastery and control, we're going to be constantly frustrated, disappointed, disillusioned. Um, If we can look at it as a process of learning, discovering, of ripening, of deepening, um, then we can find um, a way to engage that puts us in touch with a way to nourish a human life. Yeah. 
And then if we want to make that really, if we want to make that process really difficult, we become part of his Zen center. <laughs> and we join with others who are doing the same thing. And I say that partially in jest, because it's a mix, you know. You sit with people for seven days in silence, maybe not even knowing each other's names. But at the end of seven days, you, you feel like, again, feel. Uh, these are my people. I, this is where I belong. These people share the here and now with me. And of course the extension of the teachings is that everybody shares the here and now with us. Everybody's my people. The same way we belong everywhere, we belong with. It's, all, it's only us. There is no them. And when you look at our planet and our societies, you can see we're struggling with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a simple concept, but we're struggling. <laughs> so Shakyamuni went off on his own. Something more needed to be examined, engaged, plumbed to its depths. And he had some basic notions, and he followed them. Uh, the basic notion he was, one of the basic notions he was following was that there's something about being human that gets in the way of the realization of here and now. And he decided that asceticism could sort of crush and diminish that aspect of human beings that gets in the way. And he took himself through his austerities to the very brink of death. He was being so tough on himself, he was on the edge of killing him. The way it's usually written is that he tried to bathe and he almost drowned because he was so weak. And he, all he could do was like drag himself out of the water. And then an intriguing point. There's two versions. I'll tell you the two versions and you can notice in your own mind which one you prefer. Version one. He drags himself out of the water and he says to himself, Wait a minute, this can't be right. <laughs> I almost killed myself. <laughs> and he decides to shift strategies. Version two. There's a young girl 
called Sujata. He's about eight years old. He's on her way to a meadow where there are some oxen uh, grazing that belong to her family, and she's going there to kind of take care of them. And she has her lunch with her, some rice and yogurt. Sujata's walking along, and she sees this poor guy lying there, gasping, barely alive, and she thinks, I should give that guy my lunch. He needs it more than I do. So she goes over to him, and she says, Here, why don't you eat this? And so he eats it, he's refreshed, and then he has a change of heart. So just for a moment, ask yourself, which version do you prefer? Version 1 or version 2? Now, I'm not in any way going to say to you which is the real version. I wasn't there when that happened. (laughs) I've read books and different commentaries, and I have my own preference. But maybe the point of it is that um, following the spiritual path is a messy business. And maybe the helpful attitude is that it's always a learning process. Maybe the um, the principle of it is not to do everything exactly right. How could anybody do everything exactly right? Maybe the principle of it is is to keep learning. Okay, well that seemed to work well. Okay, well here I am lying on a bike just almost having killed myself. I don't think that's working well. Or maybe I'm thinking, oh, I'm not alone. And even though I think I'm a great spiritual seeker, maybe this eight-year-old girl has something to teach me. The famous Zen teacher, Joshu, said, um, if an eight-year-old girl has something to teach me, I'll be her student. If an 80-year-old man can learn something from me, I will be his teacher. Good that. And then, as they say, and then in Shakyamuni's life, the rest is history. You know? He, um, the change of heart let him take back up all the teachings he'd learned and hold them in a way 
that they allowed the gravity of being to settle and settle and settle. It settles so thoroughly that it illuminated the boundless here, that it made utterly evident and palpable the timeless now. And in that state, he realized, oh, human life. And then there's lots, there's 40 years of teaching after that. But let me just add one more detail. Um, he thought, how would I describe this to others? Uh, and he thought, I just have no idea how I'd do that. There's something that goes beyond words and ideas. It's like when the person says, I did a two-day Zen retreat, and I concluded, after careful thought and consideration, uh -uh. <laughs> that's not for me. It reminds me of this poem. It's called, All the True Vows. All the true vows are secret vows. The ones we can speak out loud are the ones we break. There's only one life you can call your own, and a thousand others you can call by any name you want. Hold to the truth you make every day with your body. Don't turn your face away. Hold to the truth at the center of life that you were born with. This is the great paradox of practice. Something in us knows, and we have lots of ideas about it. They sometimes guide us, and sometimes get in the way. It sets us on our path, and it gets us into trouble. And this is very much the flavor of Zen practice. If we try to say to ourselves, okay, well, don't have any ideas, don't have any opinions, don't have any judgments, um, how would you get out of the house in the morning? I come from Northern Ireland. We have a saying there. It's like, it's like, who puts on you? Who puts your clothes on? You seem such an idiot. You can't even put your own clothes on. Who puts on you? <laughs> if you have absolutely no concepts, no ideas, no big... 
Well, we, how do you get your clothes on in the morning? <laughs> um, if you think you can own it and master it, You'll struggle. You'll try to diminish it in a way that's small enough to fit into your hands, small enough to fit inside the conceptual thoughts you have. So the spirit of Buddhist practice, this style of Buddhist practice, the spirit of Zen, is each of us is on a spiritual journey. To find out what we already know. Even though the true vow is there, quite likely we'll make up a thousand others. Can we get in touch with the vow that we're living every day with the life we're living? And usually what it means is getting in touch with um, the commotion we make around it. The dramas, the tragedies, the yearnings, the resentments. It asks something of us, something quite extraordinary. Not so different from what was asked of Shakyabuni. But it also asks of, of us a turning of heart, you know. Turning of heart where the pain and hardship of our own struggling is not the whole story. Can something in us allow, be available for that turning? Oh, I've been banging my head against this wall for a long time. Oh, I've been demanding life be different than it is. And it keeps disappointing me in that regard. And in the Zen process, we just sit down and bear witness. Even better, sit down and bear witness in the company of others. And discover, realize, We want to be grand, we can say, realize something beyond knowing. Mm. 
and the extension of the challenges, let it guide our life. It's a delicate process. The poet who wrote this poem, um, David White, he said to me once, um, in, in the States, United States in general, he has become uh, quite a popular poet. Draws big audiences and actually does quite well financially. And he lives in a beautiful little place off of Seattle on Whidbey Island. And things are going pretty sweet in his life. And he said, but I think I'm losing touch with something fundamental. I'm going to go back to my roots in Yorkshire, where life was plain and simple. And I thought, that's pretty impressive, you know? Especially when you've had the good fortune of creating your own palace and your own uh, wonderful life. And uh, so he did, and he went back to Yorkshire. And I, I met him about a year later. And I said, how did it go? And he knew what I was talking about. And he said, ah, that wasn't it. <laughs> <laughs> and we both laughed. As Joshua said, how do you know if you don't try? And why on earth should you expect to get it right every time? Something in us knows, but it's this curious process of discovering and rediscovering, you know, I've sat a lot of sashims. Yeah. Each one offers a new teaching. Huh? <coughs> a new beginning. This is the great gift of settling in ourselves. This is a great gift of discovering what it is to belong to here and now. So today, in a while, we'll celebrate with all sorts of um, intricate details that Zen has more or less lifted from other forms of Buddhism. Shakyamuni's awakening. But we're also celebrating um, each of our awakenings. We're also celebrating each of our foolishness that has to keep rediscovering what it is to awaken day by day. 
Can we be intrigued by such a process? Hmm. Look at me being me. Look at the life I've created. David White goes on and says, without this practice of true vow, you won't understand. You won't understand the friends you've made and the work you've chosen. And you won't understand the life that waits beyond all others. And this process in the Zen world we call Zazen. And it's not simply sitting shishin. It permeates the entirety of our life. We create a Zen center to remind each other. You know, we do things in a way to remind each other how to do what you're doing. That's a very important Zen rule. Do what you're doing. Whether it's breathing, sweeping, or anything else. So we'll celebrate Shakyamuni, we'll celebrate all the other great sages that have inspired and guided our lives. Maybe we'll celebrate our own Sajata. What a sweet question to ask yourself. Um, what simple act of kindness and generosity has really supported my life. And I'd offer you this thought. Maybe we know some of the people who have supported us with their kindness and generosity. But I suspect that for every single one of us there are other people whose kindness and generosity has supported us, and we don't even know that they did it. So we celebrate them, known and unknown. And we celebrate that aspect of ourselves, that brings forth this wisdom that seeks wisdom. And we celebrate it in ceremony because, in a way, ceremony can get at something that can't be talked about. If you think about it often, 
the powerful moments of our life. A ceremony represents them in a way that just talking can't. It gets at that gravity of being. So let me end by reading a little more of this poem. All the true vows are secret vows. The ones we speak out loud are the ones we break. There's only one life you can call your own and a thousand others you can call by any name you want. Hold to the truth you make every day with your body. Don't turn your face away. Hold to the truth at the center of life that you were born with. Thank you.